How are we doing, church? Doing all right? Good, good. You look great. Hey, uh, grab your Bibles. If you got one, you're going to need one. Um, and you don't need to turn to Exodus chapter 20 because you've already memorized this verse. So uh, if you've been here for a while and you, and you don't feel very spiritual, you'll feel very spiritual now because you've memorized Exodus 20, 13. Remember? That's not murder. So you've already got that one down. But I want you to hop over to Matthew. That's where we're going to spend most of our time in a couple places in Matthew. We're going to start out in Matthew chapter 5, and then we're going to go to Matthew chapter 18. And so uh, we are talking today about the, the sixth commandment, you shall not murder, okay? And, and there's a lot of different ways I could go with this. And some of you, honestly, when you hear this one, thou shalt not murder, you think, well, thank God. Finally, one that I can just feel a little good about myself when I come to church, all right? Because Pastor Britt opened the whole thing up and just crushed my soul and spirit with the weight of the law. And that wasn't fun at all, right? Everybody left with a headache because you wanted to cry and you were kind of mad at him and you should be, all right? It was rough on us all. And then, and then we come back the, the, the next week and we talk about the Sabbath and we talk about how, how we were made for rest and we think, well, we're not doing that one very good. And, and we've heard things like, if the devil can't make you bad, it'll make you busy. And you think, actually, I'm both, so eh. And then last week we come in here and talk about honor, your father and mother. And we find out that we're all just a bunch of honor hogs and we like to be the center of the universe. Therefore, we don't really like to honor anybody because we want to be the one that is honored. But do you think, finally, when I get to this commandment, when I get to the sixth commandment, you know, I hadn't murdered anybody. So, whoo, this ought to be good. Now, there's a couple of directions that I could go with this, and we could talk about murder and things like, what's the difference between murder and killing and war and just war and abortion and some of those social kinds of issues which need to be addressed from the pulpit but the, the reason I'm go, not going in that direction tonight is this, is that sometimes you can talk about theology and doctrine and social issues and then excuse yourself as we talk about like right belief and doctrine concerning those issues. And so what I, what I want to do is go to the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus actually talks specifically about this commandment. And so again, the sixth commandment, you shall not murder. I hope you feel okay about that. Maybe you don't. We'll see. But then Jesus kind of jacks it up for us all, which he usually does. So if you go to to Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 17. This is Jesus' commentary on the Ten Commandments. And here's what he says, beginning in 17. He says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. He's talking specifically about Exodus and actually the entire Old Testament. But when he talks about the law, he is talking about the Ten Commandments plus the 630-something other commandments or 620-something other commandments that they are. And Jesus says, all right, don't think that I've come to do away with that, all right? Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until it is accomplished. Now fast forward a couple years and here's what he's talking about. That Jesus Christ is going to come and live the perfect life. He's going to obey all ten commandments plus all the commandments in, in Deuteronomy and Leviticus. He's going to obey the moral law, the social law, the religious law. But above all of that, he's never going to sin one time. He's going to live the perfect life. And he is going to complete the Ten Commandments and all the other commandments. And then when he goes to the cross and when he says it is finished, what he's saying here is every T has been crossed and every I has been dotted, that it is finished, the law is fulfilled. Then in verse 19, therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches other to do the same will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. And if you take your Bible seriously, which I do, you read that verse and you go, oh, no, 
Because I don't know about you, I've relaxed some of these. Have you? I mean, how many of you have said, well, hey, at least I've never murdered anybody, right? You ever said that? Usually when you're like a teenager trying to get out of trouble. And Jesus is saying, therefore, if you relax any of these, any of these laws, or teach others to do the same, you'll be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Verse 20, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Now, you've got to know who the scribes and the Pharisees are. They were professional do-gooders. That was their job. They got up every single day, and their job was to do good. And they were so obsessed with obeying all the commandments that they created commandments to prevent themselves from disobeying the commandments. They made up extra rules. If some of you grew up in like a real strict home, your parents were like this, right? Like, not only could you not say cuss words, but you could not say words that sounded sort of like a cuss word because it was close enough and God might not be listening right and think you said a cuss word. Do you know what I'm saying? Like in my house, we couldn't say darn it because it sounded too much like the cuss word, okay? Those kinds of things. Or, and so we would, you know, or, or, or the only, Chris, only cuss words you ever said were like Christian cuss words that you made up, you know, like Butterfinger or, you know, stuff like that. Kind of rules about the rules about the rules. So the scribes and the Pharisees, they woke up every day, and here's what their job was. They thought, if we stay religiously and ceremonially clean, then when the Messiah shows up, we will be the first ones to recognize him. All right? And so they're typically the bad guys in the New Testament, but Jesus is saying, unless you're more righteous than those men, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And so, essentially, he's giving commentary on the Ten Commandments. We, we've talked about the fact that the Ten Commandments are both a map and a mirror. The Ten Commandments are a map to show you how to live perfectly and righteous before God. All you got to do is start with these ten, all right? And you can't get past the first one, and you're like, I've already messed up. And they're also a mirror to hold them up and say, not only is it a map to show me what it looks like to be in right relationship with God, it's also a mirror to let me know that I am utterly lost and I can never reach that final destination without help. And so Jesus says, unless you get them all right every single time, you've got no place in the kingdom of heaven. Last night, um, I went to, we went to dinner and, and we, we took our kids out way too late because we're not good parents, but whatever. It was fun. We went out, and, uh, and we eat with a bunch of friends, you know, from here. And we're on our way to the truck after dinner, and JP is going with me. And just out of nowhere, he just says, Dad, you know what? And, and the reason why he starts this conversation is because on the way out the door, everybody's like, all right, see you, Pastor. Good night, Pastor. And they call me Pastor like my name is Pastor. And that's kind of weird for me. But what? I get it. I get it. I, I think it has a lot to do with the honor stuff we were talking about last week. And so we're on the way to the truck, and JP just out of nowhere goes, Daddy, I don't, I don't really think of you as Pastor. And I kind of thought, well, you know, that's good. You know, Pastor Dad is just not healthy for anybody. <laughs> but I'm interested in that kind of conversation, you know. And so I'm like, well, what do you mean, bud? And he's trying to find his words without being offensive, really. And he's like, Ugh. and then finally he figures it out, and he explains it this way. He goes, well, you know, when I think of pastor, I think of somebody that's perfect. And you are not perfect. <laughs> Out of the mouths of babes, amen? So, what Jesus would say, all right, then you're not in. You're not in. And you know what? A lot of times when you find out that you're not perfect, you know what? A lot of times, I mean, think about how many times you and I have said this. Well, at least I haven't killed anybody. At least I'm not a murderer, right? And so, 
of all the commandments that Jesus is going to start with after he says that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of that of the scribes and Pharisees, and then everybody in their mind, well, at least I'm not a murderer. Then he goes with this one, verse 21. You have heard it was said of those of old. Here's the quote. You shall not murder. And everybody went, whew, I'm good to go on this one. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Verse 22. But I say to you, and now if you were watching the soundtrack of the Sermon on the Mount, this is where the music changes, okay? Dun, dun, dun. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. You know what that means? Jesus, (laughs) Jesus has just raised the bar to impossibility. So you've heard it said, you shouldn't murder. No problem, Jesus. But I say to you, anyone who is angry with his brother has committed murder, to which people were like, how do you know my brother, right? How did you know? Because let's just be honest, on the way here, you murdered a couple people on JTB, right? I mean, you just did. And so it's very interesting that Jesus, that the words that he chooses here is whoever is angry with his brother. So the question that I just want to kind of wrestle around with, is it okay to be angry? I mean, is it okay to be angry? What if I were to tell you that actually the Bible commands you to be angry in places? command you to be angry. And in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26, here's what the Bible says. Be angry. Amen. We should write a reference song about that one, all right? But there's, a, there's more to the verse. You can't just read that part. Be angry and do not sin. So in other words, according to the scriptures, there's a way to be angry and still not break this commandment, all right? To be angry and not sin. I don't know how you just like decide how to feel, but what you do with those feelings determines whether this thing's a sin or not a sin. And if you look through the scriptures, there are places where, you know, Jesus got angry. You remember when Jesus comes to the temple at Passover and, and, the, and the scribes and some of the priests, they are selling goods to people at elevated prices and they're taking advantage of the poor and the downtrodden and the least of these. And Jesus walks in and he's angry. And he's angry. And, and, and a lot of times we think of this Jesus that has nothing to do with the Jesus of the Bible. We can, we can think of this Jesus that's timid and he's mild and he's weak and he's Swedish and he pets fluffy sheep and he, and he rides on merry-go-rounds with children. And that's the kind of Jesus that we think of that has nothing to do with the scriptures, but the Jesus of the Bible walks in and people are using the Lord's name in vain. That doesn't mean they're saying OMG. That means they are, they are using their religious tradition to take advantage of poor people that are trying to get right with God. And so what would happen is people would come from all over the place to Passover to sacrifice a lamb or a goat or a dove, depending on how big their family was, and they couldn't really travel the goat the whole distance. And so they said, I know, this is what we'll do. We'll wait till we get to the temple, and we'll just pick up a dove there to sacrifice in the temple. And so when they got to the temple, they're charging like 10 times as much for the dove, all right? It's like a Coke at Disney World. You know what I'm saying? Like, I've never had a $9 Coke. What's in here? This is amazing. Because where else are you going to get one? And so that's kind of what they're doing. And then Jesus comes in and sees people, religious people in the name of God, mistreating the people that he was there for, and he gets ticked off. And the Bible says that he goes and he fashions a whip. That's what it says. 
that he sees this, and he leaves for a little while, and he's doing something, and the disciples are like, what you doing? And Jesus is like, I'm about to show you what I'm doing. And then he comes back in, you should read your Bibles, people, with a whip, and he turns over the tables, and he kicks the money changers out. And Jesus never sinned. Now, again, he did not react to the situation. I don't know how long it takes to make a whip. I know how long it takes to get the belt out. That's a different sermon. But he makes a whip. He comes back in, and he didn't sin. Or the apostle Paul, and sometimes you're like, yeah, I know, but he's Jesus, right? Almighty, infinite creator of everything. So maybe he gets a pass on anger. I don't know how that works. What about regular people like us? Well, the apostle Paul gets kind of angry. You ever read the book of Galatians? The book of Galatians It's all about Paul goes into Galatia, plants a church on the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus that saves you and nothing else. Nothing else. It's by putting your faith in Jesus plus nothing else. And that's how your sins are forgiven. And then this group of people called the Judaizers move into the church at Galatia. And they tell them, no, no, no. Actually, you got to become Jewish before you can become a Christian. And so what that means is that you have to be circumcised in order to become a Christian. And all the women at the church of Galatia is like, no problem. And the new members class is all women. And the dudes are like, I don't know, man. I don't really think I believe like I thought I believed. All right. And then Paul gets ticked off because they're subverting the message of the gospel and they're jacking around with the with the children of God and so what what Paul says in the book of Galatians is this I tell you what why don't you circumcise yourself and don't stop there why don't you go ahead and take the whole thing off castrate yourself those are bible verses that's angry Right? Your kid says that to your other kid. You're washing one kid's mouth out with soap. Amen? And Paul does that, and those are Bible verses inspired by God. So how are we to be angry and not sin? Well, we need to be angry like God, which means this. If you, if you look throughout the Scriptures, the way God is angry is the Bible says that he is slow to anger. You see, God is love. He has to be stirred towards anger. See the difference? Some of you think God's default is anger, and it's not true. God's default is not wrath. God is love. He has to be stirred towards anger. And the Bible says that he is slow to anger. So the two ways to anger and sin, the way to not do it is to be slow to anger and be angry at the right things. Be angry not with your brother, but at the things that are harming your brother. And I know it's super cliche, and I kind of hate cliches, but this one's kind of true from our perspective. If you've ever heard the, the phraseology that we're supposed to hate the sinner, or hate the sin and love the sinner, to be angry with the, with the sin and love the person. This is a part of what Jesus is talking about here, okay? And so the ways to sin with anger is this. One is no anger. When we are not angry with the things that we should be angry with, with the things that break the heart of God, no anger. It, it, it's not love. See, the opposite of love is not hate. The opposite of love is apathy. The opposite of love is, nah, whatever. And so no anger with the things that should cause us to rise up with emotion that stirs into action for people. No love. I mean, no anger is no love. And then also the kind of a blow-up anger. That's sin. I can tell you, the, the worst I've ever done, I've told you this before, I just want to confess this to you so you know what a wretched, black-hearted sinner I am, and you'll feel a little bit better about yourself, is one time Gretchen and I were on JTB, so I'm already a little amped up, all right? I'm already a little like, all right? And so, I mean, I, was, I grew up in the country, and so if I can just see another car in front of me, I feel like I'm losing, so I kind of got to feel like I got to get around them. And on JTB, they're just like, hem me in, all right? And I feel like I'm in Daytona, and it's, Arr! And so, 
I've already got some issues in my heart. And then Gretchen and I begin to argue, and we begin to fuss and fight. And instead of me being slow to anger, I'm quick to anger. And I said something like, I can't put up with this. And I punched the steering wheel. First of all, it's, a, it, it's an awful thing to do as a husband. You should never show any aggression, even in the presence of your wife. You should never raise your voice. You should never flex, whatever. And just God wanted to teach me a lesson. So I was like, Grr! and I hit the steering wheel because I'm tough, and the steering wheel can't fight back. And then the, <laughs> the horn broke. Just laugh, and I swear it gets louder. And then, and then she starts laughing, <laughs> laughing, and I just got madder and madder and madder. And then we pull up behind the guy. You know, we get off on, on Hodges, and there's the guy at the stop sign with cars going, and I'm behind him. And, and he's like, "What? It's red!" And, and he's cussing me, and I'm like, "Get out of your car! I dare you!" I mean, it's just worse. And then we're turning. I mean, every stoplight, I'm about to get in another fight all the way home. And I'm telling you, it was like God just stabbing me in the soul saying, you can be angry, but don't sin. Here's a way to tell. Here's a way to tell if you're angry or sin or not. This is the question to ask when you get angry, all right? What are you trying to protect? What are you trying to protect? The answer will tell you if you're with the Lord or not. Because what I was trying to protect them when I punched the steering wheel was my ego. That's sin. Now, you break into my house tonight, and you try to harm my family, I'm going to get angry, and I'm trying to protect what God has given me stewardship over. And it is a, it is a godly kind of anger. So, be angry, but don't sin. So Jesus says in verse 22, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother, again, there are some times I get angry with my children. Not at my children, but sometimes my children are doing things that I know is foolish and it's going to hurt them. And so on their behalf, for their sake, I'm angry with attitudes and actions, but that does not mean I'm angry with them. And that's an important distinction. And so Jesus says, all right, if you're angry with your brother, that's murder. And whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Uh Uh-oh. I mean, if I'm holding up the mirror of Jesus Words here, I'm in trouble because my sixth love language is sarcasm and cutdowns. And let me just tell you, I am really good at it. I mean, really, really good at it. I mean, if you've got a, if, if you are a little puffed up and your self esteem's a little too high, just hang out with me for a minute and I can bring you right down. It's amazing, okay? It really is. You know how I can say things and make you laugh in here all together? Well, man, I can just do it at your expense at any time on the drop of a dime. And you know what Jesus says here? Hey, that's a sixth commandment issue you got going on. To which I, I have to say, oh, oh no. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Uh-oh, so Mr. T is done, right? Remember him? <laughs> so what does that mean? Well, the, the Aramaic word there is raka. And, it, and it's really this. It doesn't just mean to call somebody a fool, okay? Because the Bible itself calls people, people fools all the time. And a fool is somebody that knows better and does it anyway, okay? So in the Old Testament, there were three words for, for unwise people. One was simple. It didn't mean like simple-minded. It just meant you didn't know any better. So a good example of this would be like World War I guys smoking cigarettes. They just didn't know any better. The army would just hand them out and be like, hey, these things are great. <clears throat> I don't feel so good. That's probably okay, all right? Then there's the next generation, all right? And, and the Bible would call those guys fools. 
Let me just tell you, if you're smoking cigarettes right now, not right this minute, that'd be dumb, but if you're, if you're a cigarette smoker now, I don't even know if it's a sin or not. We can argue with that. I won't argue with you because I don't feel like it, but, but you're foolish. You know why? On the package, it says, you know it's going to kill you, right? <laughs> and you're like, whatever. So the Bible says you're a fool because you know better and you do it anyway, okay? And then there's the mocker or the scoffer. And those are people that are intentionally against the will of God. And so when it says fool here, this word raka is actually a religious judgment where you try to sit in the place of God. And when you look at your brother and you say, you are without God. Like I am judging your eternal soul. And when, <clears throat> and when you do this, Jesus says, that's a murder issue. Verse 23. Now, how important is this between you and God? So, so Jesus says, all right, you've heard it said, don't murder. But I'm saying to you, if you hate your brother in your heart, if you run your mouth about him, if you're judgmental over him, like try to condemn his soul, then here's what I'm saying to you. If you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, this is big. So, so at the end of this service, when we say at the end of every service, we respond to the gospel. And we respond by singing. Woo-hoo. And we respond by coming to the altar. And we respond by bringing our tithes and offerings, either electronically or in the giving boxes around the room. And what the Bible would say is if you get to that moment and on your way, I mean, you've written this big old fat check to the ministry of the church of 1122 because you're a faithful Christian and love God and he's first in your life. You with me? And then you're on your way. And then you realize, you know what? There's somebody in this room and they got a problem with me. God would say, stop. Stop. Don't sing the song. Don't come to the altar. Don't drop the check in the box. But go to that person first. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. You know what that means? A lot of us, especially in our Western mindset, here's what we think. No, 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 no. This is about my personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, I am pro-personal relationship with Jesus Christ. In other words, you can't inherit your faith. It's your faith. You don't just inherit your grandmother's faith just because your grandma was a Christian and your mom was a Christian. It doesn't just make you a Christian, okay? That it is personal, but you're never going to find in the Scriptures the phrase personal relationship with Jesus Christ. You're going to find love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. And that it's not either or, but it's both and. And so God would say that your horizontal relationships are very, very vital and important and kind of like a thermometer to your vertical relationship. And so you can't just say, well, God, me and you are fine, but me and my brothers and sisters are not fine. I mean, think about it. You wouldn't put up with that in your home, would you? If your son came to you and he loved you, Daddy, I love you so much, I love you so much, and he mistreats his little sister, guess what? We got a problem in our whole house. So God would say these vertical relationships are very, very important. So here's what you do. You first be reconciled to your brother. That's it. And again, this is commentary on what? Thou shalt not murder. He's still talking about the same subject. You've heard, don't murder. I'm telling you, if you got a problem with each other, you got a sixth commandment problem. You see how every single one of us are guilty of this. Every single one of us. So then the question then becomes, well, how? How am I to be reconciled to my brother? I mean, how do I do that? How do I forgive my brother when they've sinned against me? 
So the best text I know about that is Matthew chapter 18, beginning in verse 15. And I just want to point out something here that I, I've tried to teach on this text, and I try to teach on forgiveness at least one time a year. And here's why. Because the amount of time that I spend with individuals and couples walking through what forgiveness is and how we forgive, I just know that it's vital for us as a church to know how to forgive. And I taught on this last year, right at the beginning of Lent, but here's what I know. First of all, we've got a thousand more people at our church now, so those folks never heard it. Plus, uh, it's also like, if you didn't have somebody on your mind to forgive last year, you've probably lost your notes and you weren't paying attention anyway, and you're like, well, I don't hate anybody right now, so I'm good. And sure enough, this year, guess what? Now you've got nine people that you hate, and you've got to forgive some people. And I don't know about you, this is always, it's also just a, a recurring thing. And anytime, here's things that I try to repeat in the sermons over and over and over, is that we try to talk about the gospel, the gospel, the gospel, and that God is preeminent, God is first in your life, and you could reorder everything else in your life and get everything else in order, but if God is not preeminent or first in your life, then your life is all out of order. The three primary places that that shows up is going to be in your sex life, in your wallet, and in your horizontal relationships. And so forgiveness is just an outflow of the fact that God is first in your life, not this person that's hurt you. And so Matthew chapter 18, verse 15 starts this way. If your brother sins against you. Now you could probably say, get ready, because when your brother sins against you, here's what you're going to do. And a lot of times in church, especially in this church, we talk a lot about what you do when you sin, all right? Maybe my favorite topic to talk about, right? Wretched, black-hearted sinners. Here's what you do. Confess, repent, fall on the grace of Jesus Christ. That's what you do. But we don't spend a whole lot of time talking about what you do when somebody else sins against you. Okay? So as if your brother sins against you. So first and foremost, you've got to identify, are they my brother or sister in Christ? If not, then the conversation is not about reconciliation with you. The conversation starts with reconciliation with Christ. You can get over that one sin against you. You need to talk about the forgiveness of all their sins in a relationship with Jesus. It becomes an evangelism conversation, not a reconciliation conversation with you. Secondly, you've got to know, have they sinned against you or did they just get on your nerves? Because getting on your nerves is not a sin. I wish it was. I do. It's just not, okay? And what this means is, this, what this means is you better get real familiar with the difference between your preferences and the precepts of God. So, if your brother sins against you, number one, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens, you have gained your brother. By the way, if the church would just do this, it would revolutionize every relationship that you've ever had. Nobody does this. Can you imagine what it would look like if you talk to people and not about people? And everybody thinks they do, and nobody does. They just don't, all right? So step one is you go talk to the person, not about the person. And, 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 this, and just get, if you say amen after you talk about somebody and call it a prayer request, it does not mean it's not gossip. Just need to pray for Ted, my awful boss. Listen to the terrible things that he did for me. And let's just pray that the devil would just leave his prayer. No, it's still, you got to go talk to him. I even think God would be like, okay, I know. Quit talking to me. Go talk to Ted, all right? So first is go to talk to him. Verse 16, this is like step two, according to Jesus, on how to reconcile. But if he does not listen, take two or three others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So this is not, now this doesn't mean like you gang up on them. You've got to understand, the point here, remember, is forgiveness, which leads to reconciliation. 
So this isn't, all right, he wouldn't listen to me, so now I'm going to bring some people with me. You hold him, I'll hit him. This is not an intervention. It's, it's somebody within your sphere of influence that you can bring in and say, hey, I need you to be an objective third party here. And I need you to seriously listen to my side, listen to his side. Here's how I think I've been sinned against. And not only are you here to help me communicate, but I also need you to be my side view mirror and check, up, check my blind spots. Because I could be in the wrong here too. So that's step two. It's not an ambush. It's for the purpose of reconciliation. And if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Uh Uh-oh. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now, let me explain this real quick. This does not mean that you tell it to the church service. It's not what it means. It's not like at the end of every church service, they'll be like, all right, I'd just like to point out some of the sins of the people in the room. Uh, Hey, will you stand up? This guy's a liar, all right? I've seen his Facebook, okay? Leave. No, that's not what you do. This, this is the church service. What it means is what you do is you bring in some of the elders or staff or overseers in the church to help you, help you navigate towards reconciliation. And if that person says, well, I refuse to listen to you, I'm going to walk in unrepentant sin, then what do you do? You treat them as a Gentile or a tax collector. Now, it's kind of a trick. You know what that means? How did Jesus treat Gentiles and tax collectors? He died on the cross for their sins and he poured out grace and truth on them. That's it. That means we roll out the red carpet. Now, do we put you in church leadership? Nope. Nope. Does that mean you're necessarily a covenant member walking in unrepentant sin? Mm-mm. That's not what Jesus did. But he rolled out his grace to those people that would not listen to the truth. And so you treat him as a Gentile or tax collector. Verse 18, truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. Now this is a favorite verse by the prosperity gospel guys and it has nothing to do with cash and prizes. It has to do with reconciliation. You know what this means? Listen, no matter how bad you've been sinned against, if you two come together, God will join you in that and there is no relationship that is beyond repair. That's what that means. And it says, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am I among them. This is not a worship verse. I know worship leaders say it all the time. All right, wherever two or three are gathered. Mostly guys at little churches say that, feel better about their little church. That's not what it means. It means that God gets involved when, when you are pursuing the ministry of reconciliation. That's what it means. And so in verse 21, so everybody got it? So here's how you, this is the steps according to Jesus. Talk to them. That doesn't work. You bring some people that are pursuing reconciliation with them. And then if that doesn't work, you get, you get your church involved. By the way, it's why every single person is to be in a disciple group. You need your disciple group before you need your disciple group. And then Peter, verse 21, so Peter comes up and says to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times. And Jesus said to him, I do not say seven times, but 77 times. So Peter's like, okay, Jesus, great sermon. Now, can I get to the application? How many times do I have to do this? Peter thought he was awesome because he said seven. You know what the Old Testament standard is? Zero. Forgiveness is not an Old Testament value. It's eye for eye, tooth for tooth. You know why? Because before Moses comes along with the law, there is no equal retribution. It was eye for head, tooth for head. Whatever, you cuss me, I kill you. You stab me in the eye, I kill you. You kill my goat, I kill you. And then Moses comes along and is like, hold on, hold on, hold on. All right, we've got a bunch of blind, headless people running around. We've got to, like, tone this thing down a bit. 
And so Peter's like, look how gracious I am, because I am, you know, the rock. I'm like the best of all the disciples. So seven times Jesus. And I think Peter thought Jesus was going to be like, oh, you're such a good student. And then Jesus says, no, not seven, but 77. Literally in the Greek it says seven and 70. And that can't literally mean 490. You know why? Because, listen, I mean, just practically, every married man in here knows this, all right? If it was literally 490 times, about the eighth month of your marriage, your wife would come to me, you and go, babe, all right, you got three more, and then I don't have to forgive you. It's not what that means. Peter is, the answer to Peter's question is essentially this. When Peter says, all right, how many times do I have to forgive? And Jesus is like, um, as much as I forgive you. So Peter, how much have I forgiven you? Let's see, one, a lot. Okay, that's the number. So it's the number of completion times the number of completion with a zero. It's like a trezillion, all right? It's not even like a real number. And then, in perfect Jesus fashion, he tells a story. And in this story, in this parable, it is, what what Jesus is going to do here is he's going to reframe what it means to forgive somebody. Because when you and I think forgiveness, here's what we think. We think feelings. We do. And we've heard all this stupid stuff from like chicken soup from the soul about you just got to forgive and forget. No, that's dumb. You do not forgive and forget. I don't know how you do that anyway. How do you forget something? I mean, especially on purpose. I forget stuff all the time when I try to remember, you know. Literally, I forgot my address the other day. I was like, where do we live, you know, but whatever. I never send myself mail. So, so it's not forgive and forget, okay. And, and you think about feelings and you think about, no, I've forgiven that person. Then why do I still have all this stuff in them? That's not what it's about. So what Jesus is going to do is he's going to reframe the issue of forgiveness to make forgiveness something that you can actually do. And then maybe one day your feelings can catch up with the fact that you forgive. And so he's going to talk about money, one, to get everybody's attention, And two, everybody's going to be able to understand this illustration. But the parable has nothing to do with money. He's talking about how to forgive. So he tells the story. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. So forgiveness is you settling accounts with somebody. Got that? Verse 24. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. This is a gob of money. A talent was 20 years' wages, all right? So just add up in your mind what you make in 20 years. So 10,000 20-year wages. That's what this guy owes him. It's a bazillion dollars. In other words, there's no way he could ever, ever repay it. And in fact, when Jesus is giving this parable and he says that, everybody in the crowd goes, oh, this isn't a real story. It can't be because nobody can make that much money in one lifetime. So this, this, is, this, is, a, this is a parable, okay? And, and so... Jesus sets this framework when he's talking about forgiveness. When somebody has sinned against you, they've created a debt-debtor relationship, okay? And if they sinned against you, they've created a debt-debtor relationship. And so this king's going to settle accounts, and guy one comes in, and he owes him 10,000 talents. All right, it'd be like a trillion dollars, verse 25. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made, 26, so the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. To which, if you were listening to the story originally when Jesus is telling, you go, no, you're not. Impossible. How can you repay 10,000 20-year wages? You, you don't have enough lives to do that. It's impossible. There's no way you could ever pay this back. Verse 27, and out of pity for him, the master of the servant released, and here's the important words, forgave him the debt. 
So he looks at this impossible debt to pay, and he says, you don't owe me anything. I forgive your debt. It says nothing about what the master feels about the servant. You, feel, you following me? And then verse 28, but when the same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him 100 denarii. This is about $10,000. Be about, I don't know, about four months' wages, okay? And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay me what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and he pleaded with him. He's going to say the exact same word. So you get this, this guy goes into the king, he gets relieved of his debt of $10 million, and then he walks out and he sees a guy that owes him $10,000, and everybody watching is thinking, this will be great. This guy just got released of $10 million. He's going to probably say to the guy, hey, good news. You don't owe me the $10,000 anymore because I don't owe him the $10 million. In fact, let's go to McDonald's. You can supersize it. Owe me, bro, all right? I got extra money now, and I'm just going to let it overflow to other people. But instead... He says, pay what you owe. And so the other guy falls down and pleads with him and uses the exact same words that this guy just used with the king. And he says, have patience with me and I will pay you. Verse 30, he refused and he went and he put him in prison until he should pay the debt. And when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and they reported to their master all that had taken place. Verse 32, and then his master summoned him and he said, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay his debt. Verse 35. Now, Jesus is going to share the point. Now, listen. Do not tame the words of Jesus. If you take your Bible seriously, okay? If you take your Bible seriously, verses like this should freak you out a little bit. And listen, I'm securing my salvation, and I believe that I'm saved by grace, and all that kind of stuff. And I read these verses, and I go, "Uh uh-oh. Ready? Jesus says, so also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Those are scary verses. You know what he's saying? Here's what he's saying. So you might push back and say, whoa, whoa, so what, are, are you saying in order for me to earn my salvation, I have to forgive other people so I can receive forgiveness? And Jesus would go, no, it's actually the exact opposite of that. That if you have actually been forgiven by Jesus, then you will forgive those that have sinned against you. If, you, if your debt of $10 million has been forgiven, then the only natural response to that is to forgive the debt of $10,000. The way I would say it is, it's not good English, but it's good theology. If you ain't giving it, then maybe you ain't got it. That's what Jesus is saying. If you ain't given forgiveness, it may be because you have not experienced forgiveness. Because you know what? I mean, here's the truth, that Jesus Christ, he comes. Remember, this is what he said in, in Matthew 5. He says that he did not come to wait, he did not come to do away with the law, but to fulfill it. And he did. He lives a perfect life, and he goes to the cross. And they nail him on the cross. And they hike him up in the air. And there are the men that just drove the nails into his hands and into his feet. And they're cussing him and they're mocking him. And you know what the first words out of the mouth of the perfect Savior is? Father, what is it? Forgive them. First words. Father, forgive them. Now here's the part we don't think about. That Jesus forgave his murderers from his heart, that our murderous hearts could be forgiven. That Jesus forgave his murderers. And quickly, you think historical. Quickly, you think the Romans that were there or the Jewish priests that were in charge. But do you know who his murderers are? 
They're sitting in this room right now. I am the murderer of Jesus, and you are the murderer of Jesus, and every single one of us that have broken any one of these commandments are the murderers of Jesus. So whether you're actually the one hammering the nail or you're the one that hands the guy the hammer, you were a part of the murder of the creator of the universe, me too. And from the cross, Jesus forgives his murderers from his heart. Why? So that our murderous hearts can be forgiven. And when you experience that, you have no choice but to forgive. That's what the parable means. That's what the parable means. And so, the reason I think Jesus frames it in regards to debt, debt, or relationship is so that it would not be about a feeling that you have, but it would be about a choice that you make out of a response that Jesus is the most important thing in your life. Because you have received his grace, then you have no choice but to extend his grace to other people. And so, according to this parable, here's how you forgive. Here's how you begin to walk towards reconciliation. The first thing that you've got to do is you've got to figure out who owes you. You've got to settle accounts. For some of you, it's easy because she lied to you or he left you or she cheated on you or they, they stole from you. It's kind of easy. And we've done this a few times in this church, but I, we're just going to do it every year as long as I get to be the preacher here. Is that you, you need to take some time. You need to get out a, a piece of paper. There's no way you can do this during the service. There's not enough time. And I just need to admit this, less than 1% of the people that will be at church this weekend are actually going to do this. But for those of you that are ready to forgive, okay, for those of you that are ready to, to experience the forgiveness that Jesus has poured out on you and let it overflow into some other people that don't deserve forgiveness, just like you and I don't deserve forgiveness, the first thing you do is you identify who, owe you, who, who owes you, who sinned against you, what they took from you. And by the way, I would just say this. If you find yourself just kind of living life with like low-grade frustration and anger, and it does not take very much for it to just come spewing out of your mouth, and you begin, if you're honest and you look in the mirror and you go, why am I so angry? Then the person you probably need to write down on the list is your name. There's probably something in your own life and you've let you down. That you broke promises to you that you promise you're never going to smoke that again or drink that again, or you promise you're never going to look at that again, or you made some kind of promise to you and you did not fulfill your promise to you and now you feel like you owe you a better life. And guess what? You're right. You're right. You've stolen from yourself. But for some of you, it's other people. That other people have taken something from you. Step two is this, is you need to answer this question. What do they owe you? What have they taken from you? This is the part that most Christians skip over because you don't want to deal with it. And you've learned to suppress those feelings for so long. Man, the last thing in the world you want to do is ruin your weekend and stir up all that junk, all right? You've been ignoring it forever, drinking it away or just ignoring it, staying busy. And here's the thing. Or some of you feel like, you know, kind of super pseudo-Christian and you think, well, you know what? I'm mature. I'm grown. I don't need to let that bother me. That's the past and I'm not a whiner or a complainer and I'm just going to get over it. Listen, you get over the flu. You don't, over, you don't just get over being sinned against. I want to tell you this. It's a big deal. Some of you have been through the ringer. I mean, some of you are so angry. I mean, you murder your ex in your heart every day that you wake up. And you know what? If you told your story, we'd probably be like, yeah, I don't blame you. 
Because you stood in the altar and you promised till death do us part. And man, the first chance they had, they were gone. And you promised we're going to grow old together. And they said some stupid thing in court. We grew apart. And you're like, what? That was not in the vow. And they took something, they took a dream from you. They took your kids from you. This is big. For some of you, you feel like your kids took from you. I mean, you raised them in the church. You gave them everything they needed. Now they're off just ruining their lives. And you're like, what in the heck? And you feel like something's been stolen from you. Because when you brought them from home from the hospital, you thought this is going to be the greatest human ever. And now you hate them. I mean, you invested your whole life, and you would give anything in this moment for them to straighten up, and they just won't. And now you're freaking out. You're like, gosh, am I enabling them? I mean, what do I do? And you're just, you identify what they take from you. Some of you had a business partner, remember? And you had these ideas, and you started this business. And just quite honestly, his ideas sucked, and yours were awesome. And now you fast forward after a little while and ideas begin to turn into money and he's got all the money and you don't even work at the corporation anymore and you're scratching your head going, that son of a gun stole my company from me. And you hate him. Listen, that's legit. Some of you have been abused by people that were supposed to love you and take care of you and you were vulnerable before them and they abused you verbally, they abused you physically. Some of you have been abused sexually and they stole a great sex life and marriage from you and you're like, how do I ever get that back? See, this is a big deal. This is why most of you won't deal with it. So you spend some time. Some of you think back about the way you were talked to, and you're like, you know, the way my dad cussed me and cursed me my whole life, and I feel like he stole my future because I never feel like I'm good enough, whatever the thing is, okay? And what you're doing is what Jesus was talking about here. You're settling accounts, And what you'll have, if you'll take the time to do this, in your hand, you will have a debt ledger. This is who owes me, and this is what they owe me, okay? And now, now is where we get to forgiveness. Now you have a choice to make. When you have been sinned against, you've got two options. You just have two options, all right? You can get kind of sophisticated and call it whatever you want. There's just two. You've got forgiveness or bitterness. Those are your only two options. If you choose forgiveness, it will lead to freedom. If you choose bitterness, it will lead to a murderous heart. It's just true. And some of you think, well, there's no way I'm forgiving them because they might get away with it. That's like trying to eat rat poison to kill all the, po- all the rats in your house. It just doesn't work that way. It just doesn't. So my challenge to you, once you create the debt ledger, is just make a decision. Just make a decision. Now, the gospel implores you to forgive. Let me make a case for unforgiveness. Ready? If you're going to hold on to it, you might as well just fully embrace the thing. Quit faking it and just say, screw it, I'm not forgiving them, I don't care, I know I'm supposed to, but look at what they did, and you just hold on to it for the rest of your days. Laminate it, blow it up, frame it in your house, right there above the TV, all right? What's on TV? Uh, CNN, and then right above there is why I hate Ted. Look at there, all right? Isn't he awful? I'm serious. Take a, phone, take a picture of it with your phone, and every time you make a phone call, just be reminded of how right you are. And like, You know, just go ahead. You're going to die. I mean, I'm telling you, it's going to kill you. Or maybe you'll be the first person in human history that that one really works out. Your other option is to cancel the debt. And here's how you have to think about it. You have to think about it this way. You don't owe me anything anymore. And and some of you might go, because that's not fair. I promise you, as a Christian, you don't want to play a fair card. Okay? 
Hell is hot, forever is a long time. We don't want fair. We want grace. And I know you're like me, okay? (laughs) When I am the offending party, I want to walk into the king's chambers and be under grace, right? When I'm the offending party. When I am the offended, I want to walk out of the king's chambers and I want justice. So you have a decision. Identify, identify who hurt you, what they took from you. Spend some time creating that debt ledger and then cancel the debt. How? How? Because Jesus is Lord of your life, not your feelings, nor is that person. They will not ruin your life. And out of an overflow of the forgiveness that you have experienced by God's grace, then you forgive that person. Now, (laughs) the truth is that the way that the way you battle against thou shalt not murder when you're angry with your brother in your heart is you forgive your brother. And no matter how, no matter what has happened to you, and I'm telling you, I'm not saying it's not awful, but it pales in comparison. It pales in comparison to the sin against Jesus. All the sin of all humanity of all time was heaped upon his shoulders. And he forgave you. That you and I, you and I, by our glad rebellion against him, murdered him. And he looks us in the eyes and says, Father, I forgive, I cancel their debt. See, the fact is, I mean, just the fact is that the power of forgiveness is stronger than the power of hate and murder. In 1994, in the country of Rwanda. If you go on a mission trip with me to Uganda, sometimes we fly into Rwanda first. And in Rwanda, we will stop and go to these genocide museums. And in, in, in 1994, in the country of Rwanda, there was an incredible genocide where <clears throat> over 900,000 people were killed, mostly by hammers and clubs and machetes, in less than 100 days. And it's unbelievable the way it happened. And it, and it had to do with, I mean, all the way back to like World War I and Belgium was in charge of Rwanda and Belgium decided to kind of divide people up into people groups and, and they were almost kind of man-made people groups and there was the Hutu and the Tutsis and the Hutu were the majority group and the Tutsis were the minority group and on Belgium's way out when Rwanda um, gained their independence, they put the Tutsis, the minority group, over the majority group and they were all Africans. And there began to be hate and animosity between the two groups. And what started as an idea fell into their heart. And the groups began to hate one another. And in fact, um, the, the, the Hutu, the majority group, began to call the Tutsis, they began to call them cockroaches. And let me tell you this. Any time you begin to refer to any person as less than human, over time, you will, it'll take you down a road where you don't mind treating them as less than human. And they literally, the Hutu would say that it's time to stomp out the cockroaches. And so governments came in and they tried to make treaties and there was all kind of stuff going on. And then um, there was a, a, a kind of a, a bad guy, his last name was Javier Mana, and he was the president. And he said it was time for all Tutsis to leave the country of Rwanda. And so they are fleeing. And then just when it looked like peace might happen, President Javier Mana's plane was shot down in 1994. And on public radio, the Hutu extremists come on and says, stamp out all the Tutsi cockroaches. Some of you remember this, right? Watching it on the news. And so they began to form these, these armies, these Hutu armies, mostly of like children and civilians, and they armed them with machetes because they didn't have money for 
bullets. And they killed over 900,000 people with machetes and hammers, okay? Awful, awful stuff. In the streets and in the hillsides, and then the Tootsies began to run and hide, and they, they sought sanctuary in literal sanctuaries, in churches. They would run into churches to hide. And there's a number of churches that you can go visit today, and the Hutu people would surround the church and burn it to the ground. And literally thousands of people. At one church, there were 12,000 people in there, men, women, and children. They were burned to the ground. 20% of the Rwandan population in 100 days was wiped out. Why? Because they hated people in their heart. And look, you and I think, how in the world could that happen, man? It's, it happens in our country. And then, and then a, a, a group called the RPF, which were some kind of um, Tutsi rebel fighters, began to try to take back Rwanda. And they, they come in back over the borders from these camps that they were in. And then, you know, through all these battles, they end up taking back Rwanda. And then immediately, all the Hutu people, the majority people that have killed 900,000 Tutsis, they begin to flee, and they begin to run to neighboring countries. And then everybody basically in the world is waiting for the Tutsi folks that are now in charge to just enact vengeance back on the people that had killed their friends and their family and their co-workers. And listen, my, I got a good friend named Peter Abiyarmana that's flying in He's flying in this week to stay in our homes and hang out with us. And you've met him before. Now he works for Compassion International. He's a, he was a Compassion kid. You know what his first job with Compassion was? Is they put him in a van and he would drive over from Uganda into Rwanda. And he would scoop up the, the, some of the 300,000 orphans that were left. The reason, the way Peter got saved is he was sitting in a car during this, just after this genocide, it hadn't even all calmed down yet. And he sees dead bodies piled upon dead bodies piled upon dead bodies. And he thought, I might die. And right then and there, he surrendered his life to Jesus. This is an actual event. You understand? In 1994, and then the Tutsis take back over, and everybody's expecting them to get, what, get what's theirs. They rounded up 130,000 people that were a part of the genocide. And then you can't believe what happens next. You just can't believe it. The president says, here's what we're going to do. We, we, we can't even try 130,000 people. It took over 100 years to try all these people. So they took 100,000 of the murderers, murderers. And if they were willing to confess and repent and ask the people's family whom they had murdered for forgiveness they would be set free. And they sent those murderers out of prison, 100,000 of them, back into their villages. And those, mostly men, went eyeball to eyeball with widows and orphans and confessed their sins. I killed your mom. I killed your dad. Will you forgive me? And the Tootsie people forgave 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 how in the world how in the world man a big reason is because the gospel is strong in Rwanda the churches are strong in Rwanda and there are actual stories that you can read about 
can't, I can't pronounce these names, but this guy who was one of the murderers out of prison, he says this, because of the genocide perpetrated in 1994, I participated in killing of the son of this woman. This is an interview and they're standing beside each other. We are now members of the same church. We share in everything. If she needs water to drink, I fetch some for her. There is no suspicion between us, whether under sunlight or during the night. I used to have nightmares recalling the sad events that I have been through, but now I can sleep peacefully. And when we are together, we are like brother and sister, no suspicion between us. He was the murderer. And here's what she said. So here's why I say this. I know you've been sinned against. I've been sinned against. But man, nobody's broken in and killed my children my wife and then come back eight years later and ask for forgiveness here's her response he killed my child then he came to ask me pardon and I immediately granted it to him because he did not do it by himself he was haunted by the devil I was pleased by the way he testified to the crime instead of keeping it and hiding because it hurts if someone keeps hiding a crime he committed against you before when I had not yet granted him pardon He could not come close to me. I treated him like my enemy, but now I would rather treat him like my own child. Forgiveness. Forgiveness. Forgiveness is stronger than hate. Forgiveness is stronger than even murder. And we are called and commanded to forgive. Why? Because on the cross, Jesus Christ forgave his murderers so that and he, and he forgave him from his heart so that our murderous hearts could be forgiven. So the question is, who are you angry at? Who do you need forgive, to forgive? Whose debt do you need to cancel? And if you're not willing to extend it, I would, I would ask you to consider, have you actually experienced the forgiveness that comes at the cross of Jesus Christ? Would you please stand and pray with me? Our good and gracious Heavenly Father, God, the, this is not child's play. This is not child's play. God, I thank you so much that that while we were yet enemies of you, while we were murderers of your perfect son, that your murdered son forgave our murderous hearts. Therefore, God, even though we don't feel like it, even though it doesn't make sense to us, even though we want to enact our own vengeance, God, by the power, the grace, the gospel of Jesus Christ, would you give us the the willing hearts to choose to cancel the debt. And God, I know there are men and women here. They have enormous debts against them, God. And I just pray that they would be so overcome and so overwhelmed by the grace poured out at the cross that this moment they would choose to forgive. And Lord, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would comfort and over time that the feelings would catch up with the choice to forgive. And Lord, what I thank you for more than anything else is that you had a debt ledger against us. You had a debt ledger against us that include the murder of your own son and you canceled our debt. And therefore, God, we rejoice. We rejoice. We rejoice that your murdered son cancels the debt of our murderous hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And we're going to sing a song that is rich in the theology of the forgiveness that comes through the murdered son of God. And so we respond by bringing our tithes and offerings. But if you've got an offering to bring and there's somebody that you've got a problem with in here, you go handle that first. Or you come to the altar. Maybe the person that you need to talk to isn't in this room and you know you're going to need, I mean, you're going to need like Pentecost kind of Holy Spirit moving in you to have these kind of conversations with people. You come to the altar and let us join our voices together and respond.